Welcome to the Kesset Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us and hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you'd like to find out more about Kesset, you can head to kessetchurch.com or find us on Facebook. Uh, this series has been all about learning to uh, receive and understand sort of those, 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 uh, those quickening or awakening moments that the Holy Spirit does within our hearts. There's a psalm that David says, Lord, you have quickened my heart. You have awakened my heart. And so these symbols on the back all represented a different kind of a quickening that you can experience as a Christian where God takes you from one place and then and then moves you to another, all through just him revealing a piece of himself to you, through him quickening you through his presence. And it, it's been a, an amazing series. It's, we've done it all summer, and uh, I have had so many people that have written me and stopped me uh, and said, hey, I just want you to know this thing happened in my life, and I know it's God quickening me. I know that it is, it is him awakening me to things inside my story that he wants to walk me with, walk through me with. And it's just beautiful. And so I just want to keep encouraging you. Uh, the, the whole idea behind quickening is that it's intimate between you and him. It's not just a Sunday thing. So it doesn't really stop next week. It's supposed to be something that you, you add to your spiritual toolbox and that you uh, are sensitive to and something you can talk to other people about. Church doesn't just happen on Sunday morning in this room. It happens at coffee shops. It happens at work. It happens in all those little conversations where you get to be Jesus to people in your life. And so point out quickenings to them. Point out opportunities in their life where God is trying to get their attention and uh, be his hands and feet because it's, it's who we're supposed to be. Amen? Amen. So uh, today, uh, let me just tell you what's going to happen at the end of service because I want you to process everything through a very specific lens. Uh, today, we're going to take communion at the end of service, a past communion. And uh, communion is usually done in, in very specific ways, and it's usually taught in very specific ways. Uh, I know for me that uh, I have been raised within the church community to teach communion uh, as deeply and as richly as I can. And there's really two primary verses that people use to do it, Luke 22 and 1 Corinthians 11. These are the two primary, or at least the ones I was taught, to use. And they are the, the basic communion verse where Jesus is sitting with his disciples in, a, in an upper room at a table, and he's sharing with them that this bread represents his body, and it, this wine represents his blood, and he begins to kind of uh, share with them about communion, and then they take it together. And so it usually is just sort of assumed you understand all the meanings behind that. And I've come to learn recently in some of our communion services that actually that's not always the case, that not everybody, even some long-term Christians, really don't understand the depth. They, they get the symbolism of Jesus on the cross, and his body pierced and his blood flowing, but they don't really fully embrace, or at least they haven't fully been quickened to see what it really means for them. And so today's quickening symbol is the eye, and it's the quickening symbol of seeing, learning to see with your own spiritual eyes. This is an important thing for you as Christians to get. This is an important thing for you as Christians to understand that God has given you spiritual eyes to read his word, to sit in situations, and to see from a, uh, a beautiful perspective that only you can, can, can have. Too often people sit on stage and read a verse like it's, you know, just, it, it has hardly any dimension, and like, this is what this means. I'm coming to realize more and more that God often 
speaks through all kinds of different angles about his text and about the way his spirit moves and through all kinds of different people, not just pastors on stage with microphones. And so we're going to dive into this, and I, I think it's, it's going to bless. Uh, God tells Ezekiel in regards to eyes and having spiritual eyes, uh, those people, my people, who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not. This is, a, this is him letting you know that this should be for everyone and that we should be able to see it. He also goes on to say in Psalm 119.18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. He wants to see where God is in all these things, and that's what I want you to do today. So I'm going to pray that God would do just that, and then we're just going to jump neck deep in. And it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a powerful experience. So let's do that. Lord, thank you for every person in this room. So many stories, so many people from so many places. There's just no way, God, that any one voice can, can meet all those needs and can touch all those lives. And Lord, that, I don't have to. You, you want to. You brought every person here exactly as they are. You know what they've gone through. You know uh, where they've been, and you know where they're going. And so, Lord, I ask that in this place right now, they would be willing to be quickened, to have their spiritual eyes open to see something they thought they knew so clearly in a whole new light. Thank you, Lord, for the way you move and for the way you bless and for the way you quicken each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to use the story of Joseph, and I'm using a, a, a well-known story on purpose to show you something that actually uh, happens all throughout the Bible. But the story of Joseph is, is fairly simple. I'm just going to give you uh, six big rhythms in Joseph's life, six big uh, kind of overarching, overarching rhythms in Joseph's life. And uh, what I want you to do is just kind of log those and process those, and then I'm going to show you exactly how they can be quickened and how you can have your spiritual eyes open to see this story specifically just a little bit different and how it ties directly to every single person in this room. So let me recap Joseph. For those of us that are new to the faith or brand new to the Bible or you're just here visiting, Joseph uh, was the second youngest of 12 brothers. His father was very prolific, Jacob. His father's name was Israel or Jacob. They, it, God changed his name. And this is what we read about Joseph specifically. Genesis chapter 37 in the Bible if you want to follow along or I'll have the verses on the screen. Now Israel or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. This uh, is not a good definition of parenting for those of you in the room that are keeping track. Uh, so often in the Bible we read these stories and we don't understand that they're just saying what is. They're not actually telling you how to live. Uh, or how to be, or even how to think. They're actually just explaining this is what happened in this particular story. An old man had a child late in his life that he probably didn't expect, and so he favored that child. And so his children, ranging from probably uh, toddlers all the way to adults, uh, really hated this particular kid. And then the father went ahead and gave him a coat made from fabrics that were great, of great cost, and of many colors, highlighting the favor that he had for this child. Now, this child, as he grew, enjoyed this favor, as all rotten teenagers do. And he got to a point where he just kind of said whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted to. And then eventually he had a dream. And this dream, uh, the passage goes on to say, 
actually had a vision around it that indicated to his brothers that they would someday bow down to him. And then he told them that. He just didn't have the dream and was like, whoa, and then went to his dad and said, dad, favorite son, hey, I had this dream. He actually said, bros, gather around. Guess what I just heard from God? And so the first rhythm that we need to understand about Joseph is that he hears a clear message. He hears a clear message and he believes the message and he shares the message. He, in a sense, preaches the message. This is a big deal to him. He's excited. But that wasn't a very good idea because at that point, his brothers got together and said, we got to put an end to this. Dad's going to give him everything. We're going to be left with nothing. And, and then we will have to bow down to him. And so we got to do something about it. And so it says that one day Joseph traveled to check on his brothers. This is just me recapping. And while they were watching their sheep, his brothers plotted against him, threw him in an empty well, and later sold him as a slave to some traveling Midianites. They pushed him in a pit, probably used to catch wild animals and other things that they were trying to keep away from their flocks. And then when some slave traders came through, they said, hey, you should take this slave. He's a decent worker, and he has great dreams. And so they sold the slave. Therefore, Joseph started to experience a great abandonment. They then applied animal blood to his ornate robe and returned home and then told Jacob slash Israel that his son had been killed by wild animals. And so his father didn't look for him and Joseph was lost. He was abandoned. He was gone. He went from privilege to slavery in the matter of an afternoon. What do you do with those kind of dreams in your life? What do you do with those things that have been spoken into your story that you believe? Even those things that you've held over other people's heads, like, I know this is what God has for me. And, and, and you sort of believe it so much, but then all of a sudden you find your life in this dark pit and those people who were supposed to be family turn against you. What do you do? Joseph is riding in a wagon and he ends up in Egypt. And in Egypt... He got sold to the captain of the guard for Pharaoh, and his name was Potiphar, and he became a household slave. And through the gifts of God and through his desire to live, he became valuable to Potiphar to the point that he ran all of his household. Things were going okay, as much as a slave life could bring. And then all of a sudden, Joseph, who thought he was at rock bottom, truly experienced a terrible suffering. Through false accusations and lies, Joseph was accused of rape. Potiphar's wife, see, had an eye for Joseph. The Bible actually says he was handsome, which if the Bible calls you handsome, how handsome was he, right? Because it's God's word. So, I mean, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I've just always thought about that. I'm like, if the Bible says she was beautiful or he was handsome, I'm like, whoa, like this is it's a high level of handsomeness here. He's so handsome, the wife says, I want to sleep with you, and, and you're going to sleep with me as my slave. And he says, no, I'm not. Because Potiphar has entrusted me with all these things, including you. And so she rushes upon him and grabs his tunic, and he tries to escape, and she pulls it off. And he runs out of the house naked and incredibly handsome. <laughs> there are details. These are this Bible people, okay? I'm just, first it said he was handsome, then it said he was sprinting naked, right? And, and that's what it says. So incredibly handsome man runs away, finds some clothes, comes back. Potiphar says, my wife said you tried to rape her. Joseph says, I, no, this is what happened. And Potiphar doesn't believe him and throws him in jail, pushes him away, and leaves him. And once again, forgets him. 
While in prison, Joseph started to have dreams again. Like, what's up with that? Like, I'm at my lowest. This is, this is terrible. And he's, he's having dreams again. And these dreams are actually direct interpretations for two other prisoners that are from Pharaoh's court that are in jail with him. One of them, he says, is going to be hanged. And the other one is going to be released into Pharaoh's favor. And that's exactly what happens. He says to the one that gets out, please tell Pharaoh about me. And the guy goes, oh, for certain, for certain. And he gets out and never does. And two years pass. Not two weeks, not two months, two years where Joseph thought God provided a way out through once again those dreams he gave him earlier that brought him in. Maybe, maybe thinking, well, this thing that got me here might, might get me out and it's got to be God's providence. It's got to be who God, and then a month and a month and a year and 18 months go by until Joseph, I believe, probably sat in a place of great sorrow. One day, Pharaoh had some disturbing dreams of his own, and none of the people around him could interpret them. But one of the servants said, I know a guy. <laughs> yeah. She just would have known me two years earlier, could have skipped all this suffering, but it wouldn't have made the story as good. He says, I know a guy. And Pharaoh says, well, bring him. And so Pharaoh tells him the story about these seven skinny cows and these seven fat cows. And it's just kind of this weird, vague dream. And Joseph steps forward, this slave, two years in prison. I like to imagine just a beautiful, handsome beard, but filth everywhere. But he's still very handsome. And he says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, God has interpreted your dream for you. And he wants you to know that the next seven years throughout the land, there will be uh, great plenty. But then suddenly, there will be great famine. This is when Joseph's season of miracles starts. Pharaoh believes Joseph and actually remarks that this is such a powerful thing that you have done, that God clearly has his hand on you. And so he appoints Joseph from slave to second in command over Egypt and then empowers him to put a plan into, into place to survive the famine that's coming. And so that's what Joseph does. Genesis 46, 41, verse 46. So Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. At this point, Joseph, through the miracles that he's experiencing, through this season of plenty, has found himself in a place of great favor. But he knows that famine is coming, and so he puts a plan into place. And then the famine hits, and people from all over hear of this man off in the distance who has provided a way for them to live. And so they gather up his families, and they travel to Egypt from all over in order to buy grain from this man who has provided a way so that their lives can be sustained. And one day, as Joseph's sitting in his huge throne room as second in command of Egypt, a group of men in the back walk up for it's their turn to buy grain, and Joseph recognizes them. Genesis 42, 6 
through 11 says, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. And then they say this about themselves. We are honest men, your servants. We have never been spies. They say we are men of integrity, men of honor. We've never been spies. We're here to pay with hard cash for the, the, the thing you've provided. We want to buy what you're offering. And we want you to know you can trust us because we're good people. This, this entire scenario is, is just, I mean, it's like a soap opera, right? Like the camera pans and Joseph's face steps back and it's 20 seconds of him listening and then him being frustrated and then them going on. Oh, and you've got this sort of beautiful tension, right? It's, it's just this beautiful thing. And so eventually there's this uh, restorative encounter that Joseph goes through with these people. Joseph says, I'm going to keep one of you here while you go and get the youngest brother. You said there's 10 of you, but I only see nine here. So why don't you, or I'm sorry, you said there's only 10 of you, but I, there's 11 of you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a mathematician. I'm a preacher, people, okay? <laughs> you need math. You said there's 11, but I only see 10. Go back and get your other one, and I'm going to hold one of you hostage. So he holds one hostage, and he sends them all the way back. Now, this isn't like driving to Longview. Okay, this isn't like, well, okay, we'll be back later tomorrow. Or No, this is like a month in and a month out. And this is a lot of stress and a brother left in prison. And, but he does this, I believe, partially because he needs some time. Because he knows the hearts of these people. He knows what they've done. And he knows not just who they are and what they've done, but what they've done to him. Joseph eventually stands before all 11 men including his younger brother, and they all bow before him, fulfilling the dream. And then it says that Joseph, he just can't handle it anymore. And so he finally reveals who he is. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. Clear the room. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? And I love this response. But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence and piddling their pants. That doesn't, that's not in there, that's completely extra biblical, but I believe it's accurate. <laughs> so Joseph said to his brothers again, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to, these two words, preserve life. It's, a, it's beautiful. It goes on to say that Pharaoh heard about this 
restorative encounter. He heard about what was going on and he realizes Joseph's family's here and he wants to keep Joseph because Joseph, of course, is the hand of God. And so he says, load up all your wagons, go back and get your father and bring your family to Egypt. For those of you who love the story of Exodus, which is when all of the Israelites leave Egypt, this is how they got there. Those families turned into the nation of Israel. They were so prolific and so blessed by God that over those hundreds of years, they became a threat to Egypt. And that's when Egypt turned them all into slaves. And then, Pharaoh, and then Moses came and, and that whole story unfolds from really this story right here. This offering that Joseph, jo- Joseph gives them is a worthy offering bestowed upon the unworthy. And 11 undeserving men received his gift of restoration. It's beautiful. It's incredible. It's a story about a man who loves with abandon and gives unabashedly and so establishes a new and loving community, a new nation. But if I'm honest, I don't actually think that's what this story is primarily about. In order to see this a bit more clearly, let's take just a few steps closer and consider The Bible is continuously pointing over and over to Jesus and how he is moving toward those he loves or us. So if that's something that we teach here a lot at Kesed, here's my question. My question is, where is Jesus in this story? The Bible is is flooded with Jesus. We just have a hard time seeing it because we're not quickened with spiritual eyes to read through it. We just hear the story about a man and we tie it uh, to things we understand, and then we move on. But if you really stop and soak Jesus in this passage and can see that the rhythms of Joseph's life so clearly match the rhythms of Jesus's life, you can understand much more clearly that Jesus and Joseph are very much so explaining to you some beautiful truth about how God is working. First, like Joseph, Jesus proclaimed a clear message. And those Jesus loved didn't know what to do with him and his coat of many color proclamations. I've come to be the center of all things. I've come to provide you with answers. I've come to to be God. People are like, well, I already have a God. It's me. And so they don't know what to do with him. And so, of course, Jesus experiences a great abandonment. Even his family was confused for a while. Those Jesus loved didn't know, and so they shunned him, and in this way chose to abandon him, tearing a piece of themselves away from who he proclaimed to be. And so Jesus experiences terrible suffering. Like Joseph, it starts with false accusations and lies. The church at the time, they wanted his power, they wanted his miracles, they wanted his spiritual handsomeness. They wanted to be close to him, but he didn't buy into the system. And he said, no, I'm here for my father's work. He's given me a lot to do, and you're not, you are part of it if you want to be, but but I'm not going to become your spiritual uh, uh, systematic guide. I'm here for all people. And so, of course, they lied about him, and they said he was a false prophet. They said he was from the devil, and they accused him, and he experienced terrible suffering because of it, till eventually he was thought of by everyone, everyone of religious importance to have no value or importance. Until around 30 years old, Jesus brings the season of miracles. I think Joseph was around 30 years old, wasn't he, 
when his season of miracles came. Jesus was also preparing the way. He knew about the spiritual famine that was washing over the land, and so he used words like, I'm here to feed the hungry and quench the thirsty. And so many in great need who heard of this man who was preparing a way to meet their needs traveled from far to see him. And he does all kinds of wonderful things as he gathers Christians and as he, as he shares a message. And people became saved. People became connected. People became uh, uh, present with him is a better word at this time. And they, they knew that he was the one that could quench all of their needs. And then eventually he gathers 12 who are really close, like brothers. And he takes them to an upper room. And he leads them in a restorative encounter. To Jesus, their needs were already made clear to him. He already knows they're not men of complete integrity. He already knows that they lie, that they're deceptive, but he loves them. He uses these examples of bread and of wine to represent his own body and blood. He proclaims that he himself will be given to meet the needs and sustain life for all who claim them and that he will give freely to meet the need of the spiritual famine that's crossing the land. And then Jesus bestows a worthy offering upon the unworthy. And this is where it gets really interesting. Joseph is one of 12, and so standing before him when his brother came back, there were 11. Jesus had 12 disciples, but we know that one of them in the room would choose not to receive the offering he was given, which means how many men in the room received this Worthy offering. Eleven. He says, I'm here to meet your needs. I'm here to quench. And I'm here to restore you so that you can tell other people about what I've done. It's an incredible story about a God who refuses to abandon and so gives unabashedly Establishing a whole new way to be in community with himself. But if I'm honest, I don't think that's primarily what this story is about. And in order to see just a few more things about it, you're going to have to step just a little bit closer. And for some of you, it's going to be scary. You see, if the Bible continues to point us over and over towards how Jesus interacts with those he loves or us, where are we in the story? Where's your story and mine? And I think the answer is pretty clear now. We're the brothers. If you were to look at your life in one big overview and consider these rhythms, the ones that Joseph lived out and that Jesus fulfilled. And think with me just for a second about the first time you heard the clear message of Christ. That you didn't know what to do with it. Because you really like the control you have. And so, as much as you grasped on, there certainly was a season when you chose to abandon him. Where you did things your own way. You lived your life searching for the missing pieces that you feel like had been torn away from you. And so you experienced terrible suffering. 
The longer I live, the more I realize that people don't talk about it, but every single person in this room has experienced terrible suffering. It may not be on the outside, it may not be on Facebook, but it happens all the time. And you live without peace and hope, and you wonder where that God is that proclaimed that message, and you think, I abandoned him, but clearly he abandoned me too. And then you start to figure a few things out. And suddenly you've got some seasons of miracles and plenty. You get married, have some babies, get that raise, find an amazing church and a college right next door to you. <laughs> Incredible seasons of, mir of miracles and plenty. But then one day, somebody you love or something you love begins to fall apart and you realize, like a lot of us do after we've lived for a while, that famine is coming. You all realize that a hundred years ago a bunch of people just like you sat in a room and talked about the same Jesus and asked the same questions and not one of you know their names. And you all realize that a hundred years from now a bunch of people just like you will sit in a room and talk about Jesus and ask the same questions None of them will know our names. Famine is coming. It always has been. And the more you realize that, the more you cling on to those little miracles and those little things, but those miracles and little things won't save you. And then one day, perhaps on a day like today, you hear about someone who says they've prepared a way. Someone who says they've defeated that internal thirst and hunger, that, that spiritual famine. And so with great apprehension, you lean forward in your seats, and in your need, you ask for a restorative encounter. Kind of like this one right now. And you can feel yourself exposed but you know you won't survive without it. And then all of a sudden, somebody talks to you about a symbol, a symbol that represents a worthy offering for an unworthy life. And that symbol ties you to Joseph which ties you to Jesus, which is what communion is all about. You being where you are, Jesus being where he is, seeing your life in its entirety, not just where at age you are now, but the mistakes you'll make in the future and all the ones you made in the past. And in that place, you do your best, because we all do it first, to go, I'm a man of integrity. I'm a woman of integrity. I'm a good person. But Jesus knows, and you really know, that he is the one who can meet the things about you that no one else knows. You see, communion, I'll put it on the screen, symbolizes the freely given, life-sustaining gift of Christ's forgiveness, restoration, and relationship. That's what your eyes need to be quickened to. It's not just some church 
saying. It's not just, uh, you know, this, 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 this thing that you do once a month. Some of you complain we should do it weekly, and some of you are like, I don't like it at all. It's too public. Communion should be intimate. I don't know what your theology is, and that doesn't really matter to me. What I do know is that it symbolizes the impact Jesus wants to have in your life. It symbolizes something powerful and big, and that's what this story is about. All of those things. A story about an undeserving and abandoned people who receive a love so unabashedly poured out for them, they become part of a whole new family. How beautiful is that? How incredible is that? This is what church is supposed to be experiencing at this time. And here's the the heart of, of the message today. No one but you and the Lord know where you are spiritually. We don't know if you're about to push some stuff into a pit, pretend it didn't exist. We don't know if, if you're traveling, hoping that the next thing you find will save you. We don't know if you've already uh, uh, made friends with Joseph and you're just wondering if he's ever going to bring retribution and judgment. You've already accepted Jesus, but you're waiting for him to judge you for all the things you did back then. I have no idea where you are right now, but here's what I know, that the body and the blood of Jesus Christ want to meet your needs, and it is freely offered for every person in this room. And if you want to experience who Jesus is, let's say you're brand new and you don't know who Jesus is, then what I want you to do is I want you to receive in a moment this bread and this cup, and I just want you to hold it in your hands, and I want you to just be there. Be where you are right now. Don't take it. Just be there, just hold it and and let it happen. Let the questions happen, the fears happen, the anxiety happen. Just stand before he who has risen and ask, is this for me? Are you for me? See what he does. Now for the rest of us, we follow Jesus a long time. Maybe this shouldn't be just another communion. So I'm going to ask you to hold the same two pieces in your hand and just be with him, that one you love. Think about what it is it represents. Allow him to to stir up things inside your heart that only you and him can talk about. Let it be intimate. Let it be real. Don't let it be just just another element of your faith. Let it represent all that you believe and all that you fear, everything you doubt. Let it be all of it. Our God created the world. He can handle you. This, this is what we're supposed to be offering. And this is what it means to see with spiritual eyes. And so in a moment... I'm going to have a bunch of folks come and they're going to pass those trays, take those elements, just hold on to them. We're going to sit in a time of reflection and then I'm going to come back up and I'll lead you in the taking. Uh, For some of you, your first authentic communion. Lord, I thank you for the way that you awaken us, for the way that you meet us right where we are. I thank you, Lord, that you have worked with us throughout this restorative process that you have given a worthy offering to an unworthy person like me. So 
we sit in this time of reflection and consider your sacrifice, may you meet us here. That's all we ask, nothing more. We're waiting. And we need you. And we're grateful. 